0: together, to open his word together, amen, and to hear his word expounded upon, and we are certainly in a most important portion of scripture. As we saw last Lord's Day morning, amen, the, the idea that there were some men in the church now who were teaching that one, you know, to become a Christian, one must be saved by grace, and then we have to add the law of Moses on to the end of that. And as we all know, brother, the gift of grace belongs exclusively to biblical Christianity. Every other, I want you to let this sink in for a moment. Every other religious system, every one of them, it's a stunning thing when you consider this and think about this, every last one of them, all of them, can I say that again, are based upon deeds or acts or works which one must do, in order to appease and to have favor with their God, whomever that God to them might be. Think of that for a moment, brethren. Every single other religious system, that is how one finds their way to their God. It's a stunning thing when you consider that. Whether it's one act, whether it's one thing you do, or whether it is a, as I termed it in my own mind, I think these things, I don't know, some people think I'm insane, but I might be, A complicated, burbling, religious hocus-pocus that goes on year after year, right? Month after month, week after week, and day after day. Whether it's one act you think you're going to do or whether it's a burbling bunch of acts that go on continually throughout the year. It's an amazing thing. Every last one, listen, brethren, 4,200 religious systems. Think of that for a moment. (laughs) It boggles the mind. And every one of them, are tied themselves in to some act, whether it's one, as I said, or a burbling bunch of acts throughout the year to be right with God. This is where we're at this morning in our text. Again, this idea, as we saw last week, how is one justified with God? That's the question that has come before the church, and as we all know, it's very important, as we say often, brethren, One error begets another error that begets another error, and it spreads like gangrene. I mean, it's an amazing thing to see that. And so we have here before us this morning this important text concerning how is one justified before God. It is an amazing thing. It is, let me say it again, biblical Christianity alone is an amazing thing. It is biblical Christianity alone in which salvation has absolutely nothing to do with what you or I do with what we are doing or what we will do. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. We sing these hymns this morning, these glorious songs about Christ. All glory belongs to Him, amen. And we are secure in His work, which is really quite a stunning thing when you consider that. This, my brethren, is the very character and definition of grace. Grace. What is it biblically? The spontaneous, unmerited, free gift of God as He imputes the gift of Christ's righteousness to the undeserving sinner. Think of that for a moment, brethren, again, as we lay the groundwork this morning. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter five for a moment, again as we lay the groundwork for our text. Romans chapter five, a very familiar portion of Scripture. Again, keeping in mind that Christianity alone is has to do with what God is doing, not what we're doing, what we will do or what we have done in fact we see here in the book of romans again as calvin called it it's such a glorious work because it addresses every brother and whether you are a new believer whether you have been in, in in the lord for many years it is a great dissertation on theology that confronts every if you will every age of christianity of your christian walk and we see here again paul reiterating under the inspiration of god this free gift And it's a glorious thing. It is something, again, that is lost in the 4,200 religious systems that are across the world. A free gift. And I want to define that this morning because, again, we are right in the middle of it. We are right down in the deep waters of how is one justified and saved with God. Look what Paul says here in Romans chapter 5, this terminology that we are very familiar with. Now, previous to this, again, we see the working of God We were ungodly, we were sinners, we were without God. In fact, we were enemies of God. And then Paul says this, even though you're an enemy, even though you were ungodly, even though you were this and that, it had nothing to do with you. It had to do with what he did. It's a gift, brethren. Look at here, if you would, in verse number 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. (laughs) There it is again. Paul, again, is reiterating what... God has given to those who are saved. For if through the offense of of many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. There it is again. There's the gift of grace. If you look in scripture, you'll see the gift of grace, the gift of faith, it goes on and on. It's a gift that God gives. And brethren, we're going to define that, as I said. Look there now at verse 16. And not as it was by the one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, and again that terminology much more is used one, two, three, four, five, about seven times in our text prior to this, even here. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, they which received abundance of grace... And of the gift of righteousness, there it is again, so we got the gift of grace, we got the gift of faith, we got the gift of righteousness, all of which is given by God through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ to the sinner, <laughs> the undeserving sinner, I might add. We remember, don't we, when the, uh, the publican was standing and praying, remember that when he was standing there and he piously stands there before God and he says, I'm glad I'm not like that guy over there. I do this, I do that, I do this and I do that. And you want to know who heard him praying? Himself. The only one that heard him praying was himself, I. I, I, I. And the public says, "Ah, Lord, I can't even look up to heaven, a sinner. It's an amazing thing. This is the idea. A gift. You understand how valuable salvation becomes and the gift that's given to you when you understand it as a gift. As a gift. Look at verse... 18, therefore, as by the offense of one one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now, brethren, let me just say this. A gift is free to the recipient. You understand this. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. But you know who it costs? It costs the one who's giving it. The gift is free. It costs you nothing. But it costs the one who is giving it. In fact, it costs them everything, brethren. It's an amazing thing when you understand that. The giver voluntarily forfeits something he owns, willingly uh, losing what belongs to him so that the recipient, you and I, freely profit from it. The giver becomes poorer. The recipient becomes richer. Do you understand that? And I don't mean in a charismatic sense. Turn with me to your Bible of 2 Corinthians for just a moment. This is the one who became poor so that we might become rich. Not in gold, we were talking about it this morning, not in earthly things, but in something again that the earth can't give you, no one else can give you, but biblical Christianity through the Lord Jesus Christ alone, and that is, he become, became poor so that we might become rich. Look at 2 Corinthians. Look what Paul again reiterates. This is what's beautiful about Christianity is that there is a thread woven through it all, and it's very consistent. There is no inconsistency. Not one time do you ever see where someone has worked their way to God, not once. Always a free gift. Always this in mind. Look here, brother, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verse number 9. Again, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration, uh, writes this: 2 Corinthians. Chapter 8, look at verse number 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, brethren, he's God himself. He was gloriously, somebody prayed, I think Brother Dean or Howard, somebody just prayed recently that God needs nothing or anybody. He is perfect within himself. He is rich beyond measure in and of himself. He needs nothing. But yet look what it says. Though he was rich, Yet for your sakes, he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be what? Rich. Speaking of the blessings we find in Christ, spiritual blessings. You never see the charismatic gang getting on this verse unless they're completely twisting it out of, out of, out of place, which they always do. This has nothing to do with any earthly possessions whatsoever. It has to do with Paul talked about in Ephesians. Those heavenly blessings, God's riches beyond measure. Think of this, brethren, it's free. It's free to you and I, but it costs much. And this again is the theology, this again is the teaching of Paul, uh, and as we see here at the Jerusalem Council, this is life and death, as we saw last week. This is whether a man is lost or saved, or a woman or a child. This, this is what divides it all from the other 4,200 religions, that every one of them, you have to do an act or many acts, many, as I call it, hocus-pocus, minstrel cloth acts, before God to be righteous before him. And it is an amazing thing. Again, brethren, there's a divide here, and this divide is going to be settled at the council in Jerusalem, and it's going to be settled not by men's opinions or men's thoughts, but by the word of God itself, which is what every good preacher should do, Amen which is what every good Christian should do. You shouldn't instill your thoughts into whether or not that when there's a conflict, because there is. We saw last week, when it came to salvation, Paul would fight anybody. And literally, that's what that terminology means. When there was no small disputation, that literally means he went from a sitting to a fighting position. <laughs> Only when it came to something that had to do with the eternality of men's souls. Remember what I said last week. The church of Corinth had many troubles, brethren. <laughs> Troubles like we've never seen in our church. You know what Paul did? He said he warned them out of love. He loved them. Stop suing your brother. Amen. Hey, keep yourself under control. Leave your father's wife alone. You filthy pervert. But he did it out of love, right? Here, he's ready to kill somebody and fight somebody for the very thing that we're talking about this morning the gospel what is contained therein. While others, in the, in, the, in the council as well, they held the biblical view that one is saved by grace alone. And so our soul saving, as we're going to get into it here as we turn back there, conflict continues, although this morning, brethren, by God's grace, it will be completed and brought to a close. Look at Acts 15. Look at verses 12, 13. And 14 We'll group some of these together, amen. There's a reason and a purpose uh, for this. Look at verse 12. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought. Yeah, that's among the Gentiles by them. Look at verse 13. And after that, uh, they held their peace. James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Look at verse 14. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now, brethren, the first thing we notice in our text is that the multitude became silent. Think of this for a moment, brethren. There's a huge disputation going on. And the first thing that happens is, as soon as uh, these men stand up, there's great silence. Everybody is silenced concerning what they're talking about. It's an amazing thing. Even though, as I said, there'd been much disputing. The whole assembly, including those who were opposing by grace alone, were silent. It's an amazing thing. That word literally means they were hanging on every word of God's preachers. They're listening. There's a dispute going on. And when God's preachers stand up, they're silent, suddenly listening. What are they going to say? And I want you to see the witnesses here. It isn't just one, it's not two. There are several witnesses here that are, if you will, proclaiming the gospel, the salvation of men's soul by grace alone. Look, first it was Peter. Look at verse number 7 of Acts 15. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto the men and brethren, Ye know what a good while ago God made choice among us, That by the Gentiles, uh, that the Gentiles by many, by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And remember, we looked at sola scriptura—that is, the Bible alone. Peter never got up, never gave him his thoughts. Simply, here's what the Scripture says. This is what it says: sola scriptura, the Bible alone. We saw that last week. You know, we saw four of the solas today. We're going to see the fifth one in our text. Look at verse 12 again just by way of reminder then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul so Barnabas and Paul Peter stands up they're they're quiet Barnabas and Paul stands up they're going to listen literally on every word they're hanging on every word what are these preachers going to say Look at verse 13 And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, men and brethren. So we got Peter, we got Paul and Barnabas. Now James joins in. And what does James do in verse 14? He's the preacher who stands up. They're all silent listening. And he simply affirms what Peter has already said. (laughs) Isn't it beautiful when you have preachers who affirm the word of God? It's funny you hear so often, like a little later on, we'll see this. It's amazing this morning in Bible study. Brother, and if you're not come, can I just plug it for a moment? Just because it's so important. Brother Dean's going through church history, and it's a stunning thing. It's stunning to understand it from a historical perspective. <laughs> like this morning, just for me, I don't want to deviate too far. But many of the brethren early on in church history, they use the word Catholic. We are Catholic. And as soon as we hear that word, we think of the Roman Catholic Church. But that's not where it started. Catholic simply means universal. We are part of the universal church of Christ. God has put us in there, but you say that today, like catechism. If I say catechism, most of us Baptists, which me too, amen, you hear that word catechism, and the next thing you hear, you think of the Catholic church, and yet catechism, the word, is found seven times in the New Testament, and it means to teach. That's what it means. It isn't used to teach you the, you know, Pray to Mary, who's the co-redemptrix, and you know, splash water on your forehead and do flips and carts and circles and all that stuff. It's amazing, brother, it really is. And we see here again in our text the importance of the preacher. Look at verse fourteen. So James is affirming. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for His name. Now Simeon, what is simply what? What is that? It's Peter's Jewish name. Peter is, you know, his, if you will, the Aramaic form of his real name, Simon, was God's chosen vessel. This is what he's saying. Hey, what Peter told you is true. Peter is God's chosen vessel, his instrument, whom he would use to preach first the gospel that you're hearing that we're disputing to the Gentiles, which is exactly what takes place. In fact, I like what Spurgeon said concerning this text. He said, I wish that the people of God would again waken to the truth that, that to gather a people from among men is the greatest purpose of the present dispensation. Amen. This is what God is doing. Jew and Gentile. He's drawing them both through Christ. Amen. Now that'll change if you believe what I believe, that God is not done with Israel. But in this current dispensation of time, he is drawing from himself Jews and Gentiles from all across the world. It's an amazing thing, brethren. Amen. Spurgeon continues, It is still true, as James said at the Jerusalem Council, Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles, who take out of them a people for his name. Brethren, we are not to cling to the old wreck with the expectation that we will pump the water out of her and we'll get her safely into port. (laughs) In other words, what he's saying, religion must be done away with. We must let go of the idea that one can be saved. By you, your works... Plus what God did. Amen. It's because literally that's what you're doing. See, you're not saying it's God plus. You're saying it's you plus. Because you become more prevalent and important in the whole scheme of things. It's an amazing thing. We reverse that order. Spurgeon said, get out of that. Look what he says as he concludes. No. The cry is very different. Take to the lifeboat. Take to the lifeboat, Spurgeon. Spurgeon declared. Amen. Salvation by grace alone. What an amazing, beautiful thing, brethren, that comes to the ears of the true believer when they hear that. Grace alone. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing. Now look what else our text tells us this morning. Look there if you would. All the preachers have spoken. All the preachers have testified to the grace of God. They're testifying right and left that God by grace is bringing Gentiles into the church. But look what they do. Again, they do what every good preacher should do. Look at verse 15 through 17. And to this agree, the words of what? The prophets. It is written. What's he doing? (laughs) He's, He's doing what Peter did. Hey, remember, we were with him on that mountain. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. And yet we have a more sure word. So amen. Here they are. We know this to be true. In fact, we're talking maybe, Lord willing, if he would bring it about to, uh, to bring a uh, conference in the fall concerning the importance of the local church. Brethren, it's lost. It's lost on many. The importance of the local church, what God is doing. And I told the brothers, we haven't decided on it yet, but I like the title, Even Though You Already Know These Things. Because Christians know these things, and yet for some reason, the local church gets moved down here, down here, down here, somewhere along the importance of the role in the life of a Christian, when in fact, it's the family and the church together. Our church is nothing more than a, uh, how should we say, I don't want to, I don't mean that in a a disrespectful way, is nothing more than the families who come here. That's it. That's what we are. We're a family of God, who are individual families, and we come together, brethren. And believe you me, we need each other. Do you realize that? You know, when a sheep gets out on his own, you know who comes and gets him, right? Isn't that what Peter said? <laughs> you think the devil's just sitting there watching? Oh no. He is indeed, four verbs, I, I'm kind of going off just a little bit, I want you to consider this though, brethren, though you already know this, you already know it, he is indeed a raging lion, seeking who he may devour, he is active, he's not just sitting there as some doormat, some dormant thing, he's active, and those are all verbs, All four, you go to 1 Peter, you'll see those are four verbs, those are actions that the evil one himself is doing to devour the sheep who go out there. See, as Spurgeon said, we're not lions and bears, we're sheep. We need to be together. This isn't just a, you know, some kind of a futile exercise. So it's important, brother, as we look at this and we look at the text. He says there again, let's just finish that up. Uh, After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. Look at verse 17. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all of these things. Again, James does what every good preacher should do. Brethren, it's stunning, isn't it? When a preacher will stand up and say, no need to look at your Bible. I've heard many, many preachers say this. Don't look at your Bible, look at me. Not here. Whether it's Dean or Howard, we say, don't look at me, look at your Bible. Yeah. It's amazing. I got up and walked out of a conference one time because a pastor stands up and goes, yeah, hey, I'm going to talk to you about this and that and never mind the context of the verse. The context is everything. It's time to leave. It's time to leave. Because when you start doing that, you can isogen it. You can put anything in there you want. And that's exactly what that clown did. It's amazing. No, brother, we look at the word. Then we look at the preacher. You know what we ask? Is the preacher teaching the word? Is he, Howard prayed, is he cutting it straight? Is he being faithful to the word? It's all that matters. Do it in love, of course. (laughs) Right? I mean, you don't want to sting everybody. Stinging is good sometimes, but you want to have a little, you want to put a little, how should we say, loving kindness on it. Sometimes we need a stinging. Sometimes we need loving kindness. That's how it is. But he points them to the more sure word of God, the prophets. We notice, brethren, plural. Notice he doesn't say one. He says prophets, plural. Well, what prophet is he quoting here, brethren? Again, (laughs) don't unhitch from the Old Testament, never. (laughs) It's stunning, brethren. Well, he's quoting Amos. Let's turn there together in our Bibles. Look at Amos, if you would, this morning with me. Amos chapter 9. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, back there in the Old Testament. We don't (laughs) turn to the book of Amos very often. But here we have a preacher of God, again, reaffirming, not his own thoughts, but what the prophets are saying and have said. And I want you to notice, brother, there's a big difference here. It doesn't say it was fulfilled. It is, there's a big difference between being fulfilled and it's actually going on and taking place. There's a big difference. This is actually an active act of God that's going on. This is something God has always spoken of. Think of this, brother. Before the foundation of the world, before God ever called your name, he was, of course, thinking Are you a Gentile this morning? Yes. I think we're all Gentiles. I don't see any, you know, we had a Jewish guy come here one time for real. He had a backpack and he came to Bible study and I had my gun even closer to me because I wasn't sure exactly what he was doing. Wore a top hat, had the curls, everything. But he was a Jewish, practicing, conservative Jewish man. And immediately I, of course, went to the Pentateuch. You know why? Because they recognized that as the word of God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy right? So we talked about that. It was very interesting. But here we see in our text, Amos, the Old Testament prophet, whom James, God's preacher, is quoting to them. Look at here, if you would, at verse number 11. This is who he's quoting. In that day, will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Now, what's he talking about? He's, well, when you, when you have the tabernacle of David, you're talking about Israel. You're talking about the Jewish people. He's going he's to raise them up, going to build them up, which is exactly what is happening as he's saving them through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at, he addresses humankind. He addresses Gentiles in verse 12. That they may possess the remnant of Edom. You know what the remnant of Edom is? It's the remnant of Adam. It's all of us. All of us are in our what? We come through the loins of our father, Adam. God's going to redeem those who are in the loins of Adam, which is us, which is every person. But he addresses Israel, then he addresses here, look what he says. And all of the heathen, which are the Gentiles, which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this humankind the remnant of Adam God is going to bring them all as one in fact look at here brethren this idea this thought that James well this biblical truth that James is preaching goes way back to Genesis 22 turn back there with me if you would again God this is not something that suddenly God goes oh I think I'm going to save the Gentiles this is something that has been in his heart and mind from the very beginning in fact He's eternal. And I still can't get a hold of that. Amen? He's always been. (laughs) Think of that for a moment. That'll, That'll get you going. God who is eternal, who's always been from the foundation of the world, brethren. He is going to save Gentiles according to his glorious purpose. Genesis 22, as we remember, is the gospel being preached to Abraham. You remember that. We looked at that a while back. Genesis 22 is indeed the gospel that's being preached to Abraham through his son Isaac, who is a type of Christ. He carried his own wood, the only sacrifice, the son that he loved, his only son that he loved, amen. He rode an ass to the, to the sacrifice. There was two men. I mean, it's all there, the gospel being preached unto Abraham. But I want you to notice at the end of all that what God says. He preaches the gospel. Look there at Genesis 22. Look at verse number 16 and said, by myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, again, there's the type of Christ, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in thy seed shall all what? All the nations. Which is what? That's another term for Gentiles. All of the Gentiles, all of the nations, what does he say? Of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. The lineage of Christ, again, you see it. It came, remember, John chapter 4. Well, you know, salvation comes from the Jews. What does that mean? Well, it came because Christ came through that lineage. This is what we're talking about here. That which is going to bless all the earth, that which is going to bless all the Gentile nations, is Christ. In his salvation through him alone, which is quite stunning. So what James is preaching here is nothing new. This is something that God has in the councils of heaven itself determined to take place. James is simply correcting them and saying, some of you brother and there, you're trying to be circumcised and be saved. Let me just tell you, that's not it. Even your one act... Nullifies the right, the sacrifice of Christ. If I could add anything to Christ, then why did Christ come? If I am so good and valuable, and I have so much to offer, I have nothing to offer but my sin. That's what I bring. Amazing. All the nations would bless. In fact, Isaiah chapter forty-nine. Flip there real quickly. The prophets, plural, again. There's many. Zechariah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. They all preached this. They all preached that God would. Be taking unto himself these Gentiles by grace. Look at Isaiah chapter 49. Just a couple of them here. Very important, again, for us to get a hold of Isaiah chapter 49. Look at verse 5. Isaiah 49, verse number 5. And now saith the Lord, that formed me from the womb to be his servant. Who's that? Well, that's Isaiah, his preacher to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered yet, shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Verse 6, look at, and he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the, uh, the preserved Israel. I will also give thee for a light to who? The Gentiles. Here it is again, brethren, over and over again. James is simply not repeating. He's simply drawing men's attention back to what Scripture already says. And based upon that, what God is doing here in the book of Acts is what he gloriously determined to do. He's simply tying them to Scripture, which again, brethren, leads us to the fifth sola. It is, again, for God's glory, what? Alone. All of the solas, all of them, point and lead one to the fifth one, which is God's glory alone. You and I share none of it. We looked at that last week. You think Christ is going to share his sacrifice with you? No, brethren. You are saved through his sacrifice because of what he did. Look back there if you would. Again, in Acts 15, look at verse number 4. Sole doia gloria, deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Look at Acts 15. Look at how they attribute all of this. All glory be to Christ. We sang that song uh, this morning. It couldn't be any more apropos for our text. Look at verse number four. And then when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. God's glory, look at verse number 12. Again, we read it already. Then all the multitudes kept silence, but gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. It's God. It's his glory, what he's doing. James, again, is reminding them of that. Look at verse 14. (laughs) Simeon hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles, to take out of them a people for his name. Look at verse 17 that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called saith, the Lord, who doeth all these things. Look at verse 18. No one unto God are all of his uh, works from the beginning of the world. God alone, all of these things that we're seeing and talking about, brethren, is for God's glory alone. Men do not share That. In fact, as we continue in our text this morning, look at Acts 15, look at verses 19 and 20 and 21. We're grouping them together this morning. Look at verse number 19 there, if you would. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. There it is again, God's glory. He's drawing Gentiles for his glory. Verse 20. And I want you to notice four things. The sentence that Uh, James gives them is this but that we write on to them that they abstain from the pollutions of idols from fornication number two uh, from things strangled number three and from what blood number four so James here as we look at our text verse 19 draws our attention very quickly that first word wherefore wherefore brethren in other words what he's doing is he's connecting what he just said to what's going to follow Wherefore, therefore, we use the term therefore, therefore, well, what did he just say? Well, because one is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone is revealed by the scriptures alone to the glory of God alone, our brother James recommends that a letter should be drafted that eliminates the Jewish ceremonial law on the Gentiles who have trusted in Christ alone. He does not want to trouble them. (laughs) You ever had somebody trouble you? (laughs) Here's what that word means. It means to harass them. To further annoy them. Although he does recommend, doesn't he not, as I pointed out, four practices that will help keep peace in the church. Now, brethren, if we had some men who would rather keep peace in the church than divide the church, we would be so much farther along, wouldn't we? I mean, our church would be busting at the doors. This will help keep peace in the church, brethren. And... When you look at that, these four can be traced back to Leviticus where they apply not only to the Jews, but also, brethren, to those who were outside and not Jews. They were aliens within Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? See, this isn't just happenstance that he mentions these. These are things that applied both to the Jew and to the Gentile that were living amongst the Jewish nation. First, he says, abstain from the pollutions of idols. Well... Food offered in a pagan temple was an absolute anathema to a Jewish mind. Therefore, even though we have some liberty, let's use our liberty, what? Not to offend the brothers, not to use it to, to, to stoke it out in front of them, but to love them. And you notice three out of the four have to do with food. It's an amazing thing when you figure that out there, when you look at that. So he says, abstain from these things, and that'll keep the church unified. The second thing he says is, you know, we're abstain from fornication. Well, keep yourselves pure within the bounds of God's marriage bounds. That includes all manner of sexual deviancy, if I can say that. Be pure. Be pure within who you are. Whether you're single. Whether you're about to be married. Or whether you're married. Be pure within those Parameters that God has placed you in. Amen? That's what he's saying. Then he addresses food again. Look at that. The thing strangled and the eating of blood are connected. Those two are connected. As the Jewish slaughter practices ensured, that an animal killed for food had its blood completely drained. You do realize they were not allowed whatsoever to consume any blood, Now, this gets practical as we're getting close to gathering around the Lord's table. It's an amazing thing. I want you to see this. James says, stay away from things strangled and don't drink blood. Don't eat the blood because, again, they were specific in how they slaughtered an animal to make sure that the blood was gone completely. I want you to see this. This is one thing that has been, by God, stopped in every dispensation of time. It's stunning when you think about that. Not once. But several times turn with me if you would to genesis chapter 9 i want you to see this again this is something now brethren if it's wednesday evening and we're at bible study or sunday morning at bible study i'd ask you this question is genesis chapter 9 before during or after the law (laughs) what yeah thank you howard it's before the law the law has not been given and look what god forbids before the law is given Look at Genesis chapter 9. Look at verse number 2. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon the fishes of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Are they delivered? Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Now you realize they were vegetarians before this text. You realize that. Do you remember Remember the, the, that brother that came over from, uh, where was it, in Montana? He came over. He's got the dinosaur museum over there. We should, brothers, we should talk about having him back again. He put some, some, some skeletal looking things up on the, on, the, uh, on the screen here. And he said, all right, what does that look like? And it looked like a vicious thing. Like it was something that was going to just eat you alive. And you know what it was? It was, a, it was a fruit fly. Wouldn't touch a piece of meat. They never did until here. When God allows them to. And then he puts this stipulation upon them. So those of you who eat a lot of vegetables. I ain't one of them. (laughs) In fact. Wendy made a good dinner last night. She's not here so I can talk about her. Made this great meal last night. And I had a heaping plate. Of lasagna filled with all kinds of meat. Brothers think of that. It was huge. Meat. And and good noodles, amen, lasagna. And my wife looks at me and goes, aren't you going to have some salad? What? That's what rabbits eat. Mike eats beef. He wants some beef. Where's the beef? Amen. They were vegetarians. All of the animals that were created by God look like vicious meat eaters, but you go look, all of them ate vegetarian. Until God removed that Restriction. And then he says this. Before the law, look what he says. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have, have I given you all things. Verse 4. But flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Before the law, God says, you're not eating blood. You're going to stay away from it. Amen. Turn with me to Leviticus, again, where these things come from, that James is speaking to them about, because again, it applied both to the Jew and to the alien who was in the country and the nation. Look at Leviticus 17. Again, I ask you this question this morning. Is Leviticus before, during, or after the law? (laughs) Well, it's the giving of the law. So it's during the law, amen? So before the law, you can't drink blood. How about during the law? Look at Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Let me get that right away. Look at Leviticus chapter 17. Again, these are familiar portions of Scripture to us. Leviticus chapter 17. Look there at verse 13. Look what the Bible says there. And whatsoever man there be of the children of Israel, or the strangers, there it is, that showed sojourn among you, (laughs) even if you're not an Israelite, this applies to you. Which hunteth and catcheth any beast or fowl that may be eaten, he shall even pour out the blood thereof, and cover it with dust. For it is the life of all flesh, the blood, for it is in the life thereof. Therefore I said unto the children, Ye shall uh, eat the blood of no manner of flesh, for the life of all flesh is the blood thereof. Whosoever eateth it shall be what? Cut off. So before the law, during the law, now turn with me again to the book of Acts, because this is not mentioned once in our text, but twice, as Brother James again recites what he thinks we should do, the letter that should be written and sent to the churches, he reaffirms it, Acts chapter 15, look at verse number 29, let me ask you this, brethren, is this before, during, or after the ceremonial law? After. After. This is after the the ceremonial law is being done away with in Christ. That has been done away with. Now, we, of course, have the civil law, which is good. Isn't it good, brethren, that God didn't do away with that? Isn't it good that God tells me and Paul told me, amen, that I shouldn't steal? Isn't it good that I shouldn't take the Lord's name in vain? Isn't that good? Because he's going to judge you. If you're taking the Lord's name in vain, stop. Stop it. (laughs) isn't it good that I shouldn't kill? That I should, what? Not covet my neighbor nor his wife. It's good. But the ceremonial law, this is after the ceremonial law was done away with in Christ. Look at verse 29. Again, our text is after the law, but look here as he again reaffirms that in verse number 29 of Acts chapter 15 i got to get there myself. That ye abstain from meats offered to idols, from what? Blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which ye keep yourselves. What? Ye shall do well. Fare ye well. God, as he is using his preachers to keep the church straight, because again, brethren, as we started out, When one errant doctrine is let go, it spreads like gangrene, and it causes all kinds of unholy things to take place within the church. Brother Dean was speaking this morning in Bible study about church discipline. (laughs) There's a reason why God has church discipline. You know why that is? It isn't to beat you. It isn't to take these little kitties right here, these young men, drag them off to the side and say, oh, you're such a sinner. You're so. Because they could say it to me, too. You know what it is? It's to restore one back to his right relationship with the Lord. That's what it is. And you know what, brother? We all need it. The elders are not above it, the pastor's not above it. Pastor Dean, we're not above it. We are there with you under the same disciplinary biblical actions that need to be taken if we get out of line. It is good for me not to commit fornication and drink blood and do these things because that's what the pagans did. It's amazing, isn't it, how it's tied to idol. If you go in the Old Testament and look, you'll see very carefully that all of the things, too, that James mentions is tied to idolatry all of it, wicked, wicked things that they would do that was connected to idolatry. And what's idolatry? Well, when you put anything, anything, brothers, including my ping golf clubs above God, that's idolatry. That's the biblical definition of it. When you put anything, you know what else that includes? Your children and your family. We must be careful. We love our children. We love our wives. We love all these things, but you must never place them above the Lord Jesus Christ. Never. He may decide to take one of them from you. Then what do you do? Are you angry at God? Upset with God? Well, I'd be sad. I can tell you that. Maybe you would be a little bit. But you certainly trust him in what he was doing. Amen? So there's no blood to be touched. So practically, how does that help us? Well, I'm glad you asked this morning because, again, the hocus pocus that goes on year after year month after month, week after week, day after day, even practically today, continues in what we call the Lord's Supper. You know what happens to transubstantiation when you understand that you are not allowed to drink blood? I remember growing up, I'd be sitting there and, you know, you're waiting for it. I was in, grew up in the Catholic Church and you're waiting for it. You know what I'm waiting for? Brother Dean, you might remember this. Some of you who grew up in the Catholic Church, you're waiting to hear the bells. Remember that? Ring, ring. Everybody, oh, you know what just happened? The wine just turned into the literal blood of Christ. Hocus pocus. If you've ever seen it, an unbloody sacrifice that's offered. Year after year, week after week, month after month, day after day, which could never take away sin. It's it's amazing, isn't it? That's the practical biblical truth for us today as we are about ready here to gather around the Lord's table. We are going to gather. We're going to celebrate what God is doing and what he has done and what he will do. You notice who's not mentioned? You or I. It's not what I've done. It's not what I will do. It's what God has done and will do and will continue to do. Amen? In the life of a true believer, you will, brethren. You will continue to the end. He will carry you through to the end. It is an amazing thing when you think about this. Do you understand the seriousness even of the Lord's table when when they teach what they teach? I'm going to close with this, and I want it to be a positive thing for you. Not only does the wine become the literal blood, but the wafer becomes the what? Literal body. In fact, Dean shared a new one this morning that I hadn't heard. I thought I heard every hocus-pocus thing the Catholics have ever taught about the Lord's Supper. <laughs> There's a, he was talking about this morning that some bees came one time and took one of the wafers And flew away, and one person found the the beehive. So they went to the beehive to get the wafer, because it is the body of Christ. And when they looked in the beehive, do I have this right, Brother Dean? When they looked in the beehive, were the bees eating the wafer? No, they were bowing down to the wafer. All the bees were bowing down to the wafer. Brethren, that's idolatry. And by the way, let me just run this by you, and not to be uncouth, because I don't want this. But we got to think logically, don't we, brethren? if we're ingesting the body of Christ, where does that end up? Brothers and sisters, listen, the blasphemy is amazing and people don't think it through to the end. No, brethren. When Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He defined what that meant earlier, didn't he? He's talking to them spiritually. You realize i got to close, i got to stop. But this just opens up a whole nother can of worms. You realize in the book, in the Gospel of John, that Jesus used metaphors at least 11 times for himself. You remember that? I'm the vine. John 15, well, was he a vine? No, he's metaphorically speaking. And when he says, you eat my flesh and drink my blood, he's spiritually metaphorically speaking that without him you have no life in you. Jesus contradicted himself, didn't he? If we are gathered around the table to drink his blood, it's not possible, brethren. All right, well, let's pray together this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word and the truths that it contains. And all of us are frail, all of us are fallible men. Now, I'm talking about those who preach the word. I mean, everybody realizes, right, there's no such thing as woman preacher. You know that, right? It doesn't exist. Only in the minds of the liberal devils does that exist. We are indeed weak and fallible, but we have the Holy Spirit of God that lives in us who grants unto us the power to be faithful in the word of God. I'm talking about faithful preachers, elders. And Father, we thank you as we learned this morning in Bible study that it is by your grace that a man or a woman or child will stand to the end. We are saved by grace, but then it is, as Paul said, the grace that was bestowed upon him to finish his race, to keep the faith. And then he was ready to be poured out as an offering. And Father, we pray this morning that each of us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who, as Paul said, have trusted in Christ alone, that you would indeed grant unto us grace. For that grace carries us through. It is the grace of God that sanctifies us. It is that continual, ongoing thing that transforms us more and more into the image of Christ. And Father, we pray as believers this morning that maybe that sin that we're all... Well, everybody knows where they're at. I don't. That's the beauty of believing in the Word of God and preaching the Word of God and thinking the Holy Spirit of God and knowing that He's the one that goes to that place. Whatever sin we may be struggling with this morning, we pray that you will indeed... That the Spirit of God will indeed convict us of that. That he will draw us it off. That we might not be unholy, but holy. Sanctified and set apart. And Father, we pray also this morning for the lost sinner who's sitting here this morning. We pray for them that as you've done to each one of us. Again, it's what you've done. It's what you have done or are continuing to do and what you will do. What we pray that you would do in them, what you've done to each of us who are saved. And that is that you would, that the Holy Spirit of God would come and that he would regenerate us, that you would draw us to the cross, that he, the Spirit of God, would regenerate us so that we might look up and see the Son of God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took our place, who indeed shed his blood, his life blood, that we might live. And Father, we pray for them as well this morning. And now, Lord, as we gather around the Lord's table to remember, to take the emblems which are representative of your broken body and your shed blood. That again, as we sit silently, we will remember that great price. (laughs) That free gift, amen, that costed us nothing. But costed you dearly the free gift, which we can't earn, which we could never work for. You simply impute it, give it to us. You apply it to our account. And we are made judicially judged by God himself as sinless through the work of Christ. And we thank you for that this morning. Now we pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior. The name that is above every name. The name at which, as Spurgeon once said, even the demons aren't dumb enough to think they know who he is. They shudder at his name. And men blindly walk around blaspheming him, shaking their fists at him. There's coming a day. There is indeed coming a day when every knee will bow. And every tongue will indeed confess his name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For what? What is the reason? For the glory of God. And Father, we thank you now this morning that you've been so gracious and kind to us. We pray these things in his name. And all God's people said, amen.